happy Monday. What are you thankful for? One thing I am immensely grateful for is you, our listeners. Thank you for spending some of your Monday morning with me. I'm Sanaa and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM and also available anytime, anywhere on WYXR.org. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Over the past several years in the discipline of sociology, but also in other academic departments and other fields as well, there's been a movement to correct the histories or the stories of the histories of knowledge production. In other words, who did what that has shaped our current areas of study? And for sociologists, one big proponent of this is placing W.E. Du Bois, along with a lot of other Black sociologists, back into or I shouldn't say back into, but into the canon of our discipline. And so today we're going to do a deeper dive into what this means and what it would look like for our discipline. And I think also by proxy other disciplines, if we actually took up this call to recenter who some of our founders of our intellectual histories truly are. And to do that, I am joined by Dr. Earl Wright II. He is a professor of sociology at Rhodes College and a native Memphian, having graduated from Tresden High School and also obtaining his BA from the University of Memphis and an MA in sociology from the University of Memphis. Dr. Wright has authored numerous books and articles on the contributions of Black Americans and historically Black colleges and universities to the discipline of sociology. He is the nation's leading authority on W.E.B. Du Bois and the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory, which is the name given to scholars engaged in sociological inquiry at Atlanta University, currently Clark Atlanta University, between 1895 and 1917. He is the author of The First American School of Sociology, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory, which was published in 2016, and also the author of the more recent Jim Crow Sociology, The Black and Southern Roots of American Sociology, which was released in 2020. Good morning, Dr. Earl Wright. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Dr. Laybourne. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm very much looking forward to this. Yes, I am so excited to dive into your research and especially thinking about your most recently published book, Jim Crow Sociology. And what I loved about reading your book was I love this story that you start out with in the beginning, um, reflecting on your time in the master's program, but also kind of flashing back to um, to your childhood. And I'm wondering if you could share that with our audience, um, because I think that really frames out, you know, your interest in Du Bois, um, but also I think some other important points about how our own experiences really shape our understanding of the world and can lead us to very different conclusions um, from other folks who may not have those same experiences or may not be the same um, in the same social location in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Um, Well, my love for this topic really emerged um, unknowingly to me at a very young age. Uh, due to life circumstances, I lived part of my 
uh, childhood with my grandparents. And in my grandparents' home, they had this bookshelf. And on this bookshelf, it appeared to me in my child's eye to be thousands of books on that shelf. Um, when in fact, there were maybe 10 to 15. But three books really stood out to me. One was the Bible. You know, it's a was raised a, a Southern Baptist, uh, went to church uh, multiple times per week. And that was always the book that was most prominent on that bookshelf in our lives. The other book, book that I remember, uh, Roots by Alex Haley. And I remember thumbing through a couple of pages of Roots and it was just this huge, uh, heavy uh, book. And I'm like, wow, it's gonna take a while to read this. <laughs> And keep in mind, I'm at the age of maybe seven, eight or nine-ish. And when I realized that, and I'm really gonna age myself, that Roots was about to be aired nationally, and this is around 77, 76, I decided, well, I'll just watch the miniseries as opposed to <laughs> the book. But there was another book that really caught my attention. Um, and it became more prominent to me as you foreshadowed earlier, while I was a graduate student at the University of Memphis and how I became a graduate student, uh, we can talk about that later. But I was feeling a bit of discomfort with what I was being taught in the graduate program. Um, my master's thesis was on the urban African-American barbershop. And since there was no literature on African-American barbershops, my advisor, um, instructed me to just look at the broader urban sociology literature. So in doing that, I came across these early works of University of Chicago sociologists. And they were suggesting that Robert Park and Ernest Burgess were the first to really first critically study the city. And there were just these accolades given to Chicago sociologists dating around 1920, um, early 1930s. And for some reason that just didn't sit right with my soul. And one day I was sitting in class, a theory class, I believe. And throughout the whole program, I'm like one year into my program and I was just uncomfortable. And I just had this, I can't call it an aha moment. I was literally dozing off in class, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I, I had a flashback and I flashed back to my, my grandmother's bookshelf, my grandmother's home. And that third book that was on her bookshelf it was a book written by a man with a funny name, uh, published in the 1800s. And it had the title Negro, it had the word Negro in its title. And that book was The Philadelphia Negro by W.E.B. Du Bois, published in 1897. And when I thought about that, it was like my world became clear. Uh, my life's purpose, which I have since called that moment, and what I'm doing today, my life's work became clear. And I began to wonder, if Du Bois wrote that book in the 1890s and it predated Chicago and um, the city written by Park and Burgess by a decade and a half, why are we not learning about W.E.B. Du Bois? Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment, again, that I figured my love of black history in general, my love of black institutions, that would be the focus of my career as a sociologist. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us, because I think it's so important. There's so many key threads in that story 
I mean, one, just of course, this idea that sociology is dating itself with the Chicago school. Um, and, you know, all of us as sociologists learn about all the work from the Chicago school and very early in our careers are probably drawing upon some of those theories to make sense of, you know, our research interests to some degree. But I think it's so important that you had this moment where you could draw on, you know, personal experiences that told you like this version of history or the truth is incorrect. And what does it mean if we have inaccurately placed our, in this case, our discipline um, with these, you know, founding fathers <laughs> as they were? What are we missing in the discipline? What then gets lost methodologically, theoretically? And then also what gets lost as we think about um, Black people as well, when we completely exclude Du Bois and then many other sociologists as well from our histories. And I love that in your book, Jim Crow Sociology, you're telling us exactly what we miss, what the discipline misses, um, but also I think more than just the discipline, but our understanding of um, what it means to be a researcher, um, our understanding of Black life, particularly in that specific time period, all of that, we get an inaccurate view because we're we're relying on white sociologists and their worldviews to tell us about Black life and to tell us about race relations in the United States. Um, and I think part of what you, you know, bring out in your book is the role of these Black researchers and how their worldview is able to produce much different research than what is understood and commonly accepted at that time, still very much based in um, scientific racism, the works that are being produced. And so I love that. Um, and you talk about, just to kind of ask you a question, even though I know you talk about much more in your book, you know, why, why wasn't Du Bois' work <laughs> included in the in the canon of sociology? Why wasn't his work being taught, you know, in this foundational theory class? And could you just tell us a little bit about why is it that Black sociologists um, were were and are marginalized and ignored when we're thinking about the founding of sociology? Yeah, great question. And when we look at the founding of sociology we must understand that it occurred immediately after the era of reconstruction uh, where black uh, Americans were given an opportunity due to the Freedmen's Bureau um, and the, the, the self-help programs established by the United States government to make um, lives for themselves, to be able to support themselves, to get, become educated. So there were many HBCUs, historically black colleges established by the federal government and what these early social scientists wanted to understand were the transitions taking place. Not only the transitions from slavery to freedom, but really from life in rural America to the growing cities because we were transitioning as a population density to those areas. So we must understand that during that time, literally many white Americans believed black people had tails, um, believed black people were biologically and intellectually inferiority. So the idea that this group of in formerly enslaved people by nearly 30 years were able to produce scholarship comparable to or better than white scholars at the University of Chicago was anathema. So in a previous work that I've published, I, I've identified racism 
as the primary uh, factor in the invisibility of not only Du Bois, but what I call the other big four of black sociology. But also prior to my work, uh, which was published starting around the early 2000s, there had only been one study conducted and that was by Elliot Rudwick in 1954, I believe. And Rudwick in his scientific study of the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory and pretty much said this, and I'll sum it up. What Du Bois and those other black scholars were doing was nice, you know, it's cute, but it wasn't real scholarship. It wasn't methodologically sound. They did not produce theory. So in addition to racism being a cause or explanation as to their marginalization or um, exclusion, the idea that there was no theory presented was one reason. Well, if we consider a theory to be a set of interrelated statements that attempt to explain and predict social phenomena and are replicable and, ge and um, uh, generalizable, then the resolutions produced by the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory in their 20 year volumes of studies qualify. Now they may not meet the, the formatting, the pros that we have of today, but by the strict definition of the term, they are. And the other thing Rudwick tried to nick the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory on uh, for their marginalization is their lack of methodological rigor, which was quite astounding to me when I read that because mm -hmm. I began publishing in 2002 that Atlanta University is where this whole phenomenon called the insider researcher took place. Because again, putting ourselves in rural Alabama, rural Tennessee, rural Mississippi in the 1890s, early 1900s, even the most well-meaning white social scientists will not receive accurate data on black family income, wealth, uh, um, how many people live in the house, what are your occupations for fear of what could happen to them by those clan, uh, uh, robed and unrobed members of the Ku Klux Klan. Other methodological advancements uh, the introduction of a limitations section. Du mm. Bois and Atlanta University were first to do that because they understood most white scholars would be hesitant to consider their data findings objective. They would think they would want black Americans to be viewed in a favorable light um, given the time in that era. And lastly, they were the first to introduce a methods section in their studies, again, to push back against questions about the reliability of their data and how they collected the information. So these are some of the ways the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory and really other HBCUs were marginalized through the guise of the lack of the production of theory and the lack of methodological rigor, but also the overarching theme was racism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's it's almost, un I mean, it's not unbelievable, but it's like, so when we think about Du Bois particularly and the extensive methods that he and his team use um, to conduct their studies, it's absurd to think that there would be challenges to rigor, right? And that's a word that is often used to try to marginalize um, and invalidate scholars of color even today. Um, but thinking about years of work, thousands of interviews, right, that um, these scholars conducted in order to, you know, come up with their research and their findings and to present, also present um, what they found. And, you know, you're right, you know, racism is the reason why these scholars, you know, were marginalized at the time. But something else that you brought up that I thought was really interesting was, um, you know, 
one reason that people might say, oh, they were overlooked or ignored was because people didn't know them or didn't know their work. But as you talk about in your book, that's simply not true. And could you provide some examples or kind of just expound on that idea of how well known these um, Black scholars actually were for that time? Sure. And um, I'll start with Atlanta University and W.E.B. Du Bois, then briefly mention Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee Institute. The Atlanta Sociological Studies began in 1895 with the investigations. The annual publications were released between 1896 and 1917. And within each volume, each year's volume, they have in the appendix persons uh, who, who requested issues of that particular year's study and persons to whom those issues were delivered. So there's a, a complete record of this and that is also one of the arguments that um, Redwood made that, yeah, you conducted some nice work, but no one really knew what you were doing. Well, when you look at the Atlanta um, studies, the monographs, you will find that publications were sent to elementary school teachers in the Deep South and as far away as California. They were sent to universities, including uh, the University of Texas at Austin, um, Ivy League institutions, the University of North Carolina. They were sent to many of the prominent magazines of the era, both white and black. So the idea that the rich scholarly products of Du Bois and the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory were hidden in what I call academic obscurity is a misnomer. And that goes back to the one of the first points I made. It wasn't that they were hidden. It was that it was just, again, considered absolutely crazy that these uh, dark-skinned people could conduct research that was of any value and importance. As it relates to Booker T. Washington and Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University, what I uncovered in the book Jim Crow Sociology, and this is what really surprised me, many or most rural sociologists did not know this either, because I was invited to keynote the Rural Sociological Society meeting this past summer, and this came as a shock to them. But the of applied rural sociology was established at Tuskegee Institute by Booker T. Washington. Now we all know those of us who study Booker T. Washington or even on a superficial level, the debate between Washington and Du Bois understand that Booker T. Washington was a showman. And at any opportunity um, he had to talk about the greatness of Tuskegee, he did it. Mm -hmm. So he would often go around the country talking about the great activities that were occurring in sociology at Tuskegee University. So again, for someone to suggest that what these scholars and individuals um, and schools were doing uh, were just unknown, that is, um, it's not consistent with the facts. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I love that the Atlanta studies kept this record of who was requesting their scholarly output. So they had the receipts and now we're able to understand even contemporarily how much their work was known. And I'm sure also how much their work was attempts, you know, to be replicated or to learn from, you know, what it was that they were doing, the methods that they were using. But of course, without doing do credit as you um, discuss in your book. 
Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Earl Wright II, the leading expert on W.E.B. Du Bois and the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory. And we've been talking about his book, Jim Crow Sociology, The Black and Southern Roots of American Sociology. Now, one thing that I really enjoyed about this book was... um, you know, your decision here not to focus on these individual superstar scholars, but instead to really think of the institutions in which, you know, they were part of, the collectives and groups. Um, And I think that's so important um, that we think about how much, um, how much Uh, work was needed, interdisciplinary work, but also support and not just these individuals who are doing great work. But tell me for you, why was it important to focus on these schools and particularly um, these big four schools as you identify them? As I was conducting the research on Atlanta University and W.E.B. Du Bois, I began to find a few themes, not only in the works of those schools, but Um, I was also interested in what was taking place at Fisk University, initially under Charles Johnson, but the more research I conducted, I saw the origins of the program under George Edmund Haynes. Similarly, I was looking at for early um, significant schools that were contributing to the discipline, which took me to Howard University um, and Kelly Miller. So what I found was certain ways the discipline was being practiced at HBCUs compared to predominantly white institutions. With the main linchpin being the idea that mainstream sociology during that time was trying to find itself, trying to assert itself as a legitimate scientific quote unquote discipline uh, with the heart, with the physical sciences. And it was leaning a lot towards abstract theorizing without much interaction with the individuals. And what sociology at Atlanta University and these other schools was about was how do we not only understand our social condition in this world, primarily being victimized by the nation's first and most abhorrent domestic uh, violence, uh, domestic terrorism organization in the United States, the Ku Klux Klan, but how do we make our lives better? And that is the key difference between mainstream sociology and black sociology what kind of social reforms, public policy implications can one have? So as I began to understand what I was identifying and what I was understanding to be was black sociology, a question popped in my mind. Was Atlanta University an anomaly or were other HBCUs engaged in similar types of works? And I quickly discovered, it it didn't take long, (laughs) I discovered that Fisk, Howard and Tuskegee were doing some of the same work in addition to Hampton. But one of the sad parts about my investigations into all of this research is unfortunately most HBCUs, especially in the in terms of sociology, don't have much of a written record that remains. So although we know Hampton produced um, important sociological works and activities, um, the artifacts are not there. So it was important to me to make sure, one, that we did not simply deify W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes, he is a great scholar. Yes, he did tremendous things both in academia and beyond, but he's simply a man. He's a regular human being. And especially for those who know his personal biography, 
he had his personal feelings as most of us have. So I did not want to simply deify him, but I also did not want to just contribute research on other superstar individual superstar black sociologists like Charles Johnson, who has a, a decent amount of articles written on him. But I want to situate these historically black colleges and universities as centers of not only intellectual thought, but ground zero for the development, the true development of sociology in this nation, especially as we practice it today. Because one of the things we talk about today is public sociology, uh, building bridges with the community. Now, prior to the year 2000, that was you know, something that was not even considered in sociology, not valued in terms of tenure and promotion or those things that will give you uh, a, a, a raise. But now it's the going rage. Everyone talks about that. And that's why I make the basic argument that black sociology really established sociology in this nation. Yes, yes. All right. So many, so many key points here that I want to pull out. So one, you know, I think I just want to say very much it's important to preserve the archives. And I see your book as that art, you know, part of that archival process. I'm thinking back to when I was doing some research at Howard University and their library, you know, it does it's not air conditioned. And I'm just thinking about all of these historic documents that are not going to be preserved. And you're thinking about DC, a place that is as hot and humid <laughs> as Memphis, and their library not having air conditioning. And Myself and another um, researcher, we actually got kicked out of the library because they said, you know, we're closing for the day. It's too hot, you know, and, and just thinking about, OK, what are the impacts on these historic documents? It's too hot for them, too. Right. And so I think, you know, your work is so important and also being part of that archive as well, because unfortunately, I think some of these physical archives as they are now won't, you know, exist, you know, in the decades to come because of, of some of these issues. But you mentioned um, a few things. So one, you know, not wanting to deify Du Bois. And I think it's so important that to look at the whole collective, otherwise we continue to make uh, black scholar, individual black scholars exceptions instead of thinking about, okay, what was the actual support, you know, around them? What about the other folks who were doing very important work that we might not know by name? Um, and then the other piece that you mentioned, um, and I just would like for you to talk a little bit more about it, was this idea of Black sociology. And I don't want our listeners to think we're just talking about sociologists who are Black, but you've defined um, Black sociology a specific type of approach. And so could you kind of share that with us as well? Sure. Um, I define Black sociology as a type of scholarly production that can be performed by Black and non-Black scholars that is based on the centering of African-Americans from a non-deficit perspective that may be interdisciplinary. And the end result is to find uh, produce data that are generalizable and have social and public policy implications. So in this way, black sociology is really what some call scholar activism. It's, um, it's wonderful to have a room full of books that one has authored or um, a voluminous number of articles that are all found on these, these databases, electronic databases everywhere. But what good is that research? What good are those books 
if they do nothing beyond the wall, if they only stay rather within the walls of your institution, how do they impact the people um, beyond the, the uh, colleges and university? Or as Bob Marley puts it, how do they impact the everyday people? And that is what black sociology is about. It's not about mere abstract thinking. It's about engaging, not selfishly hoarding one's talents, mm -hmm. but using your talents to the benefit of the masses and not to go into um, communities suggesting that I have all the answers. I'm, I'm Dr. Wright, you should listen to me. I'm gonna tell you what your problems are and how to solve those problems. No, that's not what black sociology is about. It's about working uh, collaboratively with members of, of the community, allow them to identify the issues and problems of concern to them and work with them. Now we simply may have on this end of the, of the table, the vocabulary uh, to express what the issues are, the ability to uh, write up the findings or conduct the studies. But with black sociology, one of the proponents of it is that we place the data into the hands of the people to give them agency. And if they are willing to do that, so be it. If they feel uncomfortable engaging in spaces like this uh, with uh, uh, media personalities, then we can serve as an intermediary. But it's about collaborative engagements with the people with the objective of engaging in research that benefits the people. Mm -hmm. And that's such a different orientation um, than what mainstream sociology has taken um, for, for, you know, for so long. Um, and I really appreciate because I think for a lot of folks, especially a lot of scholars of color, we come to this work um, or we come to sociology as a way to gain tools in order to contribute to our communities, whatever communities they may be, in order to bring about some sort of social change or social reform or, or public policy. And I think that's so important. You mentioned that um, right now over the past you know several years that there's been more acknowledgement of public sociology and our potential ability to contribute to um, uh, public policy or social change in ways that was devalued and so I'm wondering um, do you see this type of work or this orientation to sociology being integrated into the discipline as a whole or do you see this as simply um, what's popular now because of kind of like the changing um, kind of temperature of society or do you see this type of public engaged work or community engaged scholarship actually being integrated into the discipline of sociology? Um, I see it as being popular now and also um, incorporated into some to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a tremendous amount of pushback um, of public sociology into the bloodstream of American sociology um, as evidenced by uh, the past few national meetings of the American Sociological Associations, Association where there have been um, vocal dissenters on exactly what constitutes quote unquote real sociology. Um, but in terms of just observing from my vantage point, given the reviews of tenure portfolios and things of that nature, there is an increasing awareness that to some degree, this public sociology lens is needed. And if I could add more and combine this with the previous question, mm -hmm. one, of the re one of the reasons I wanted to expand beyond Du Bois specifically is, is to refute this idea that Du Bois was the singular 
and only driving force behind the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory. He did not, um, her in a Herculean manner, conduct all the studies by himself, write all of the material by himself. It was a team. That's why I call it the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory. He just was the spearhead of that. And to do so, uh, to acknowledge him and not give others credit uh, would render them invisible. Had I done that, we would not have come across people like Augustus Granville Deal, who I argue is probably one of the first, if not the first public sociologist. Uh, he was a former student of Du Bois um, who participated with the first um, sociological study of the family that was conducted by seniors at Atlanta University under Du Bois's tutelage. And he later became the co-director of the studies with Du Bois. But what we also discovered is he was one of, if not the first black queer sociologist, mm -hmm. Augustus Granville Deal. So he does not receive as much recognition and probably would not have received any had we simply focused on Du Bois. Lucy Laney, who's best known for establishing the first public school for black uh, children in the state of Georgia, she contributed to the early years of the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory. She's not a name that we talk about in the discipline. Georgia Swift King, who was a, a citizen researcher, as we call her, she was a contributor. So I want to highlight these names as well to um, um, give them their shine. Mm -hmm. It's so important too, because as you mentioned, we don't learn these names and yet they did important groundbreaking work that really could have shaped our discipline um, in a way that we would be you know, benefiting from now and be able to expand upon those foundations. So my question is, you know, how does sociology as a discipline change or what would change if we started our history and our methodologies with the likes of the Atlanta School or even that of the big four that you detail in this book? How would that, how would that change our discipline or what might the trajectory of our discipline look like if we would have started um, our histories and our, our understandings there? Mm -hmm. This is a question that I've pondered thousands of times. <laughs> and what I keep coming back to is were it not for race, the moment that we currently find ourselves in now, where mainstream sociology in a generalized fashion is accepting this scholar activist model, is accepting the idea that research should have some social reform um, objective. We would have been at this point, maybe in the mid 1900s, if not earlier, had we been there, then I contend that as a discipline, we would be more useful to society today than we are. Mm -hmm. Because what we are doing basically is just replicating um, many studies that have already been conducted, as opposed to engaging in research that we can put into the hands of politicians directly that would impact the daily lives of our loved ones and ourselves and this nation for the better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Um, let's take another break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee on 91.7 FM WYXR. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Earl Wright II, a professor of sociology at Rhodes College. And we've been having a great conversation about his recent book, Jim Crow Sociology, The Black and Southern Roots of American Sociology. 
Now, before the break, I asked you, you know, where might we be if we had um, really started our, you know, how we think about sociology with the big four schools that you cover in your book, thinking about Howard, Tuskegee, Fisk, and Atlanta, and Black sociologists um, who are really groundbreaking in the types of questions they were asking and the methodologies that they were using. But now I'd like to ask you more contemporarily, you know, now that we know this information about these various schools um, and the, the legions of Black scholars, you know, what has been the take up by the field of sociology in regards to recentering um, the beginnings of American sociology with the likes of the big four? In terms of the big four, the progress, uh, there has, there's been no progress. <laughs> um, there's been minimal progress with Du Bois and I'm um, hardened to see some efforts of including Du Bois and the Atlanta laboratory in the discussion, but I'm frustrated um, on a number of levels. One, there's a tendency to ghettoize the works of Du Bois and the Atlanta laboratory. Yes, the primary subjects of the studies were black Americans. But when you talk about research methods that extends beyond race, when you talk about some of the findings, those extend beyond race. So while there is a good faith effort, I assume to include these, uh, uh, this new information in the literature, we need to get beyond including him simply in the intro section on theory where we just surface level talk about talented 10th and double consciousness and in race, but make him a fundamental and the Atlanta laboratory, a fundamental part of the methods section of the family uh, of substantive area, um, even in those textbooks and the church. The first study of the church in America was conducted uh, led by Du Bois in the Atlanta laboratory. I alluded to rural sociology earlier in the, uh, our conversation. There is no acknowledgement of Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee program at all. And I'm hardened that there's a special issue coming out in the Journal of the Rural, uh, Rural Sociological Society that really uncovers and attempts to initiate this discussion to make it an area where they will feel more comfortable presenting this information. So um, I wish things would have advanced farther than they are now, but unfortunately there's been some pushback. And um, I, this has been more than a two decade effort of mine. Mm -hmm. Initially, I was out there all alone <laughs> pushing this, this work, but around um, the last five to six years or so, there have been more individuals uh, producing works in this area and the discipline is becoming more welcoming to it. But I distinctly remember um, one meeting that I went to, the Mid-South Sociological Association meeting, late 1990s, early 2000s. And I had just presented my work on Atlanta and the significance of Du Bois and Atlanta University. In fact, making the argument that they produced the first American school of sociology. And there were two full professors at the top of their uh, profession who were about to come to fisticuffs, about to fight <laughs> about uh, the findings that I made. One professor was from um, a well-known historically black college and university in the state of Georgia. And the other one was from um, a state institution in the state of Alabama. And uh, they 
the argument became so heated because the, 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 the gentleman from Alabama could not understand or, or wrap his brain around the idea that this research could be true and that these individuals could have done that kind of work. So there's been a lot of resistance uh, toward this movement for the past 15 uh, so odd years, but I'm glad to see there's been some positive direction uh, made, but much more needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you detail in the book why, and, and you talked about it, you know, early on in our conversation today about why, um, you know, scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois and other scholars as well were marginalized and ignored. And so my question to you is thinking about contemporarily, you know, why does there continue to be such pushback against incorporating Du Bois, but other scholars as well? And um, into the field of sociology even today? Well, my cynical answer is to say that um, many of us suffer from the same afflictions that our students suffer from. We don't like to read new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that means we'd have to change our syllabi. We'd have to take time to really do the work as opposed to the superficial understandings. Um, similar to what I just mentioned about the intro textbooks, they'll mention double consciousness and talented 10th, but beyond giving some generic uh, definition, they don't go any farther than that. So for many of us, we either don't want to do the work or truth be told, even as sociologists who are supposed to know the world in a different way that those untrained in sociology know it, we don't want to incorporate that material because we don't actually believe it. Mm -hmm. We think it's being politically correct. So I'll, I'll, if I have to discuss uh, women, I'll talk about Jane Adams, so check that box. If I have to talk about race, I'll talk about Du Bois, check that box. Um, so it, it, it takes a lot of want to, to get that included and infused into the curriculum, which is why I was asked to be, um, asked to write rather, um, an intro to W.E.B. Du Bois textbook that will be used as a supplement to uh, intro to sociology classes. Uh, mm -hmm. such that you'll get beyond the superficial level. But also in this new textbook, uh, we will show you how Du Bois and the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory fit within various substantive areas of the discipline, research methods, religion, the family, um, and other areas. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that. I'll definitely be looking for that. Um, one thing that came to mind a lot for me as I was reading Jim Crow sociology, um, and even in some of the comments that you've made just now, was this idea of me search. And I know a lot of scholars of color will be familiar with this term, me search. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more for our listeners, you know, what is me search and how has that been really weaponized against scholars of color, both past and present? Mm -hmm. Me search is the idea that people of color, um, people in subordinate positions in the social structure engage in research that is directed primarily at their community with the underlying assumption that they frame the issue in a subjective, not objective fashion. Um, and that is convenient and not necessarily completely scientific research and work. My argument to the me-search notion is that every scholarship that you come across is quote unquote me search. Um, 
the way that a person comes to define the research question of the topic they want to investigate comes from some personal place or some level of experience, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. And this whole idea of me search is something I've pushed back on and I can't say push back on. I've never really cared about that. <laughs> um, because for me, it's about doing the work. If you engage in high quality work, similar to the boys in the early years where he was understanding, aware that his work would not would be well received unless he had these uh, buffers. What were those buffers? The limitations section, the method section. And then you can judge it after reading it in its totality. So um, if I produce quality work, then I'm fine to let whoever come back in analyze it um, as such. But I am disheartened when I see junior scholars and graduate students who are very much um, enthralled by a particular topic, but because of internal pressures, meaning departmental, maybe their chairperson, maybe their advisor, or whatever pressures, often go in different directions than what they want to. Because I've really been focused on this topic for 22 years now. It's been my life's work. And I've never for one day felt like I'm actually doing work. This is a passion for me uh, because I'm uncovering things and I'm studying things that mean something to me. And if you're conducting research that doesn't mean anything to you, which gets back to the objective of black sociology, then you're just jumping through the hoops. You're just doing what it takes to uh, uh, manage to uh, accumulate X amount of publications so I can get tenure, so I can get a little extra money in my pocket and go on and uh, uh, you know live my happy, nice life which everyone is fine and well to do. But if you are a true practitioner of black sociology, that's not your objective. Your objective is to do something substantive for society. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important because as you have, have talked about throughout our whole conversation this morning, you know, what is, what good of, it is it to have all this knowledge that is, you know, sitting behind a paywall or just sitting in, you know, a nice book on your shelf, but that actually hasn't contributed to the communities that it's about or to our overall social good. And I think that's so important because so many people, you know, there is a love of learning and I'm definitely one of those people that loves to learn, but I also want you know, my knowledge to be able to give back to people um, and to hopefully leave the world, you know, in a better state <laughs> than what it may currently be. And I think that's so key. So thinking about the discipline uh, moving forward, what is it that you would like to see or what is it your hope, you know, with the work that you've done? Um, first with the discipline, I would like to see there be a full-throated embrace of scholar activism. Mm. And for that to occur, uh, it will probably need to be a top-down uh, phenomenon, meaning doctoral programs that produce the next generation or each generation of sociologists. If they don't buy into it, um, the embrace of this new philosophy can occur, but it will not be as quickly as one would like. Mm -hmm. uh, as it relates to my work, one thing I said from the beginning um, to myself when I began publishing these works is that I'm not in this for uh, personal aggrandizement. Um, I was not producing this work so I could get my name out there. 
And I distinctly remember saying I could care less about that. It's about putting the names of these unknown, little known uh, black and brown people in the public sphere. So they get their credit for the tremendous works they've done for the past 100 years, but no one knows. Mm -hmm. What I would like to see happen is a more thorough um, exploration into not only the historical contributions of historically black colleges and those scholars, but scholars at minority serving institutions in general um, and explorations into city histories of the development of sociologies. Because mm -hmm. one thing that Du Bois uncovered, not uncovered, writes about in the Atlanta studies uh, was the city had a, um, a sociological club and I'm looking for people to pick up the mantle and investigate how, how did these sociological clubs look, not only in Atlanta, but were there these similar clubs in Los Angeles, in New York? Um, because I'm not one to, to try to, to um, uh, hog all of the, 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 the research topics. I can't publish everything. So <laughs> I'm just hopeful that we have such um, a critical mass of scholarship out there that the discipline can't help but to infuse these works into its uh, uh, bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And what's next for you as far as research projects that you have in the works? What can we expect next from you? Um, well, the two I will disclose at this moment. Um, <laughs> uh, one is the introduction to W.E.B. Du Bois textbook that I'm working with with a colleague at the University of Louisville, uh, Dr. Kalasia O.J. Um, so I'm anticipating that one will hit the streets next year this time, fall 22. Mm -hmm. And my next major project that I'm working on stems from my love of the South. In addition to when I think back to my grandmother's bookshelf, one of the things that really fascinated me with Du Bois's book was not only the, the title Philadelphia Negro, but the connotations that come with people who are from the South. The idea that we are backwards, we're less intelligent because we speak with a drawl or an accent or uh, whatever you may. I argue that not only do Blacks located primarily in the South not receive their just recognition, but sociologists across the board from the South do not receive their just recognition. So my next book or my next effort will look at the seminal contributions and the place and standing of Southern sociologists in the discipline. Mm, that's exciting. Okay, so you're really shaking up the discipline from every angle that you can. Um, because as you mentioned, yes, us Southern sociologists, we definitely get, you know, siloed um, and not appreciated as much as some other folks from other places. Um, so I'll definitely be looking forward to that work. Well, I know that we are winding down at our time together this morning, but I wanted to give you the opportunity if it's any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with this morning, I'd love to give you opportunity to do that now. Sure. Well, just um, as a native Memphian, I just want to say how uh, pleased and happy I am to be home. Um, especially working at an institution that I lived a couple of blocks from. Uh, I lived and grew up in North Memphis in the Valentine area and also Hollywood. And for me, those spaces 
particularly that road space is one that I passed by literally thousands of times and never crossed my mind that I would work there, uh, nor did I aspire to work there, to be honest, it just happened. Um, but I just want to encourage those who um, have dreams, who are motivated, who uh, believe they may not be able to accomplish what they want to accomplish, to reinforce in them the fact that you can do it. Um, whatever your life's passion is, be driven by that, whether it's in the arts, uh, whether it's in academia, whether it's in the business world, regardless of the profession. Um, um, strive for it with 100% effort. Uh, use your passion and your platform to become the greatest you that you can be. Thank you so much for that. I know someone needed to hear that this morning and that's something worth repeating and worth always having that encouragement. So thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you again to Dr. Earl Wright, the second professor of sociology at Rhodes College. I enjoyed our conversation so much. And of course, as a sociologist, it was so great to read his book, to think about and rethink, you know, what are the histories of sociology, of the discipline, and what does it mean and what does it look like to recenter how we think about our foundation to include not only W.E.B. Du Bois, but also Black sociologists coming out of, you know, the big four schools that he kind of talked about, Howard, Tuskegee, Fisk, and Atlanta, and how that makes us rethink our own methodologies, the own types of questions that we ask. I think more and more we're seeing the importance of understanding histories of disciplines, fields, or even our nation um, with a full and complete understanding of those histories. And it is only by having that complete understanding that we can move forward. So thank you again to Dr. Earl Wright II, but also thank you so much to him for leaving us with such a positive note. You know, normally I end with a positive note, but I think Dr. Wright's final comments to us all were just so important and just the type of encouragement that we need at this time. Well, this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Thank you again for spending some of your Monday morning here with us. And of course, remember, wherever you are, you can always tune in on WYXR.org. And if you happen to miss Let's Grab Coffee, never fear, because you can also listen to replays of previous shows, both on WYXR.org, but also in the podcast format on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. So definitely make sure that you subscribe, like, follow, share with a friend. Until next Monday, I'm Sanaa.